This panel is moderated by our founder and CEO, Richard Wilson. Thank you, everybody. If we can please give a round of applause for our last panel of the day. Great. Thank you, Andres. We do one annual event that's called the Single Family Office Summit. It's usually in New York City in Q1. I believe it's going to be in March in 2020, and it features only single family offices on stage throughout the day. You won't see any multifamily offices. Uh, you might see a few angel investors uh, who may be just, just under what's wealthy enough to have a single family office, but it's all private investor, single family office perspective at that event. So if you enjoy this panel, I encourage you to come to that Q1 event uh, that's usually in New York City. So I'd like to start out um, maybe down at the end. Uh, and uh, introduce yourself maybe, just one or two minutes on your day-to-day -day perspective on investing, what type of organization you're with, and then we will get right into the questions. Okay. Yes. Hi, so uh, my name is Dan Hughes. I'm founder and managing director of Hughes & Company. Uh, we're an introducing brokerage firm based in Fort Lauderdale, and we're also a small family office uh, as well. Uh, our main focus is on the futures industry where we serve as the home base for CTAs uh, for their execution. We also assist other family offices get into the managed future space um, or hedge their you know, market exposure in the futures industry. I've started my career at Deutsche Bank over a decade ago and um, you know, I'm very much looking forward to being part of the panel here. Uh, we're a small family office in that we allocate to the managed futures industry uh, and the advisors ourselves. Uh, we're uh, family-owned and family-operated. Great, thank you. David? Yeah, hi. Richard, you should go out in the hall, get everybody back inside, because this is the best panel of the day. That's why we put it last. All right, David Bars. I'm a first-generation single-family office. I was like some of those guys outside, a vendor, a bankruptcy lawyer, got into the distressed investing business, built a firm called Third Avenue Management into a $31 billion asset management company, sold it to a public company, retired to start my family office, and I'm very excited to be here today and look forward to learning more. Thank you. I invested in your funds a long, long time ago. Hopefully not anymore. Well, thank you all for still being here with this by cocktail hour. Um, it's hard to compete with that. Uh, my name is Greg Kodara. I'm a managing director at CGI Strategies. Um, it's the family office of a LA-based real estate family, and we have a roughly a $1 billion portfolio spread across ground-up development in New York and LA, and uh, some value-add in the Southeast. Great. Thank you. Marco? Hello. Late as always, huh? Well, thank you for having me. I'm a fourth generation family office based out of New York. Uh, the last few years, the last 10 years after I had done my work at Goldman, one of the things I never wanted to was to join my family office because of the dynamics of family offices. But at the end I did and I started restructuring the company into today what it has become. The Serena Corporation, where the founders of the San Miguel Brewery, for those that are familiar with beer, the Philippines Airlines, when there was no airlines, we manufactured cars, motorcycles, and outburst engines for yachts. Today, we're being playing in the technological um, sector where we are looking into AI, Hyperloop as one of the main programs, electric vehicles, and that's kind of like the turn that we have done in the last 10 years and um, 
we've been pretty good at that. Great, thank you. And uh, Miriam, no problem. You're you're early by Miami standards, so don't worry about it. <laughs> you want to introduce yourself for one or two minutes? Sure. Uh, my name is Miriam Gonzalez Luján. I am from Argentina, and uh, my family origins are in the agricultural uh, products, land development, some real estate. Um, and then I came to the U.S. to study and. Um, have a master's degrees in economic and MBA and I started in Wall Street uh, working for European banks and uh, doing deals in uh, the entire world, US, Europe, Eastern Europe, Russia and Latin America, mostly all the products and industries and then specializing in DMT. Now funded in 2008, all, all years, and the family office and based in uh, New York and Argentina and we do real estate, uh, some oil and gas, DMT, and um, biotech, and some um, oil, and, uh, oil and gas, and then agricultural products. Uh, we came back to the basis, and that will be part of uh, what I will be talking today. Great, thank you. So I get two questions a lot at these type of events. How do I get the most value out of my membership? And I say, definitely submit your materials. That way my whole team gets to know you. You get free advice back. And we can keep you in mind for helpful connections in the room or with our clients. And then also, how do I get the most value out of the events? It's by doing what you guys are doing right now. So I don't need to tell you that. If you go out to the hall and you just network all day, you miss what the bios are, you miss what they're looking for, et cetera. Each of you are doing several different things, but if you could summarize in just two words or less, and then the geography of what you're looking for most, like consumer products, London, or you know, blockchain, you know, uh, Monaco, et cetera, uh, then why don't we start with you, Miriam, and then we'll work our way down the line of just uh, one or two words on the type of asset that you're looking to access. Uh, by speaking here today, the type of real estate deal or asset class, and what geography is of most interest, because uh, all of you are doing many different things. Yeah, um, I would love to expand later on on this subject, because I believe this is very important. But um, one of the things that uh, I would like to strengthen in by coming to this subnet and, and getting to know people, hopefully, as you, as you see, uh, I'm coming from uh, an emerging market, Latin America, and we are uh, looking forward for connecting with families that are also from other parts of the world that are involved with the commodity trading and also commodity trade finance. So anything that have to do with agricultural commodities, food commodities, metal mining, oil and gas, um, talk to me, please. And if you are direct, and if you, it doesn't matter what part of the world, if you are direct producer, um, later on I will talk about the possibilities of financing, but also we are interested to work with you. Great, thank you very much. Um, so let's do uh, two words plus geography, Mar Marco. <laughs> you should run for president of Argentina, by the way. <laughs> Um, we've, we've taken uh, the motorcycle, we were the first manufacturing company of motorcycles in Spain in 1939, a company that died in the 50s, I'm bringing it back with an electric vehicle platform in the US, Europe and Asia, I mean we're playing multiple. Great. 
We're looking for young multifamily developers and operators who need kind of a bigger brother to help them sign loan guarantees, to help them fill their equity stack. If they need GP equity, that's what we come to this conference to look for. Uh, how small is too small? Are some people in here that have only GP'd with their small you know, sponsors? Are some people in here that do two deals a year? They're trying to build momentum. What, what's worth your time to look at uh, track record? It's about size. the size of the deal for us, but if you're you know, if you've done, this is your second deal and you've got the best piece of land in LA locked down, you're probably not going to get to control it. We're not going to sign your loan guarantees and let you, uh, give you a blank check to go build it, but we could still do business with you if you've got the site control. Um, it just, it's about the level of control. Great. Okay. So you guys can come in as like kind of a, a co-GP on a deal or respect the fact that they sourced it. Maybe they raise a little bit of LP capital. You raise maybe the lion's share depending on the situation and that way you're in that percentage of carry based on how much you're managing the deal? It's very situation specific, but yeah. Right. If, okay. we, if we have to get our construction team involved and we have to manage the whole process, you're gonna get a little less. Worth if you're doing more. everything, we have three JVs in New York, uh, four actually, um, and the local partners took most, did most of the heavy lifting. Um, we flew in our, our CM, you know, once a month to go see it. Uh, and you know, that was a good, Great. that was a better economics. There's another deal we're doing in LA right now. We're, we're the landowner's keeping 50%, we're bringing 50% of the equity, uh, and we're leading everything, so we're, we're getting all the fees. Great, I'm glad we uh, talked about that because the co-GP trend and co-investing uh, is pretty big, but a lot of families don't know how to access high quality deals, a lot of people don't know how to talk to family offices about that, and I think even worse, many people go to somebody's office with their term sheet and say, this is the deal we have, or they email people, uh, you know, a widespread email saying, this is what we have, do you want to invest, it's two and 20 fund, and it's not direct investment, so it's blind pool, and you're basically talking to entrepreneurial families that want to either add strategic value, or they could help raise part of the LP and remove some of that stress from you, or just come up with creative terms, whether it's debt versus equity, et cetera, and I think deals don't get done, because it's just, people are just pushing across their terms without respecting the fact that you might want to creatively structure the deal to reflect your value you know, in the deals. I see that a lot. Uh, David, what about yourself? So I, I come from the public markets, but in most of the people here, it feels like are real estate related. But uh, the gentleman who spoke earlier didn't emphasize this enough. I think the opportunity zone opportunities is a once in a lifetime thing. And so I am focusing pretty much all of my attention on that geographically diverse, but it is going to go away. And you're all going to say, why didn't I do one of those deals when they were here? because they're ridiculous. Right, and importantly, versus some other uh, tax strategies, it's literally mandated by the government and you're encouraged to participate. It's not a gap between the laws that you know, people are just using. So like, that makes it pretty unique compared to some other uh, tax strategies. Uh, Dan? Yeah, also in the, the public market space, uh, given where we are in the, you know, the cycle economically, uh, I like to look at some of the active management, especially short duration type traders uh, in the regulated exchanges. Really doesn't matter uh, specifically which geographic region, um, but uh, being highly active within the marketplace is what I'm kind of looking at, investing in, and, and working with now. Okay, great. We haven't been able to ask enough uh, questions from the audience, so I'd like to open it up early for questions. At any time, if you want to raise your hand as I'm going through my next few questions, and we have one question here in the middle. Uh, then we'll run a microphone over to you and then we'll uh, come to you after this next question so we don't um, have any break here. So I want to talk about what drove you to start you know, a single family office if you've put a formal one together versus just having a private bank take care of your capital or just uh, outsourcing to a multifamily office and not having your own single family office. I don't know if 
David or Marco or anyone would like to comment on that decision-making progress and the, the trade-offs or benefits of doing so? I'll just go first because I'll be brief. It's about decision-making. I think it's really tough to be part of a multifamily process, especially as a first-generation family office person. I wanted to be in control of the decisions, of the things I wanted to do. I joined a private investment club, a la Tiger 21, but it's much better when you can pick and choose who your partners are going to be in that. And we meet quarterly, religiously, and share investment ideas. But we all choose about what we want or don't want to do. And having control of decision making was critical for me as a single family office startup. Great. Thank you. Miriam? So, um, again, coming from uh, the other part of the world, we come here to be educated and to see the developed work, right? So we learn the traits of the game and then we want to apply it. So we have certain advantages because we know the risk, we know the uh, culture, we know the languages and therefore we can use all of what we have um, learned to apply it in different uh, countries and then we have higher returns. I, I, I can explain you later. Great. We, we did a benchmark survey of 180 family offices and they said the number one reason to come to an event like this is to share best practices and then to network and build their network over time was the close number two reason. I would have thought it would be the opposite before we did that survey, but Marco? So as a fourth generation, we're sprinkle our money around the world with different banks. As a matter of fact, I have my personal and private banker sitting right there from Merrill Lynch. I made him come here because I need him to understand the direction that we're taking with our family's money. And the relationship is really important. I don't know everything there is to know about public markets. And sometimes having that conservative approach helps because I tend to be risk adverse, right? So riskier than right. usual. And it just grounds you. And it's also as a CIO and portfolio manager of my own assets, it gives me a benchmark to compare my performance against a big bank. Right, right. Yeah, good point. If there's other private bankers in here, some people see, oh, if they want a family office, I might lose a client. But if you're able to actually help them be informed and you're the source of that value, you could be part of that solution and platform versus, you know, threatened by it. Uh, anyone else want to add anything? So we, for the family I work for, what happened is that you have to separate a real estate business from the family assets for many reasons and the family assets are being run like a private equity fund basically. They're not trying to get it, you know, there are two kinds of family offices, some they're trying to get like 7%, chill, not lose any money, no big drawdowns, and then the other kind that are really businesses and we're trying to get 20% returns. Um, and that's why that's the loan, signing loan guarantees, putting in GP equity, and trying to get the most out of every percent. Great, great, thank you for sharing. I know we have uh, one question here in the middle and then I think we had another hand up over on this side after him. Oh, right next, okay. Um, hi, uh, my name is Santiago Dune. I'm portfolio manager for Kiefer Fund, which is basically um, uh, an index-based uh, equity fund. Um, I understand that traditional family offices invest a portion of their assets in equity, as you were mentioning. Uh, my question is, how do you traditionally do these investments uh, with a traditional LP structure or directly in stocks or ETFs or how do you do it? Anyone want to take I can it? take this one too. 
so to, again, back to the public market. So when I ran Third Avenue, we were required to put 100% of our assets in our own funds because we like to eat our own home cooking. The day I left, I diversified my portfolio and, and took Warren Buffett's advice and went into the S&P 500. Today, five years later, we're at a record high again today. The S&P 500 has continued to rise. Why? Because everybody's putting their money in passive index strategies, right? Everyone's putting their money in passive index strategies. I'll repeat that. So what people should be thinking about is what's the right allocation for that? And, and should it be a part of your portfolio? Everyone should have exposure to the liquid public equity markets. What that percentage is, is for each individual, but it, you must have exposure to that. Great, thank you, David. And uh, also when we asked 180 family offices if they had an, a formal allocation to real estate, 78% uh, of them did, and on average they allocated 24% to real estate. So it might seem like there's a lot of real estate families here, but that's just because if you make your money in manufacturing or consumer products, you usually like to sleep at night knowing there's an apartment building or self-storage facility under your name that is producing cash dividends. Maybe it's even in a trust that nobody can touch or mess up, and you just refinance the money out you know, after 10 years, et cetera, or have a uh, debt load on it that makes it so your net worth goes up without a lot of income being shown on that. So I think that's one thing I wanted to, to point out. I think we had another question. Yes, go ahead. Um, this question might be more for Gregory. Uh, Brent Ritchie with the New Rich Investment Group. Um, so when you, maybe, I know every deal is kind of customized and it depends on experience based of what's coming to the table. Um, what type of strategies or what do you like to see? And uh, Russell, I think you mentioned, or um, Richard, you mentioned this as well. Um, everything's kind of customized. Come to you, see what work out uh, mutual kind of JV or, or uh, term sheet. So specifically for apartment buildings, assisted living projects, ground up. Uh, what do you like to see in terms of a team? And then what type of structures maybe have you seen in the past for an experienced team? If you've never done a project before in your life and you have the nicest piece of land in LA, we'll talk to you. Um, it, otherwise, it really depends. You know, it's, it's a very difficult question to answer because it depends how much capital you can bring to a table of your own capital, how much capital, uh, external capital you can bring. All these things are, 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 are deal points, right? Generally speaking, for signing a loan guarantee, we have to be in control. Um, you know, unless you can sign a loan guarantee and you just need the capital, then it's another, it's a completely different discussion. It's never happened before. But, um, you know, it really depends. Come see me after, I'm happy to have a chat. In my experience, it's how high conviction the team, the strategy, the location, the asset is, and then that tells you how risky it feels, and, and is the operator really going to be able to see it through, and in the worst case scenario, what would happen? And then uh, I know some investors, like one, one family, we're under due diligence on a few deals right now they represent, and they like 60% or lower LTV, and they do, they've done 150 hard money loans against pieces of real estate, and uh, their terms are 10 to 12% and they're finding people that, that want the money at those rates. I know there's better rates out there from some investors, but that's what they want to get as their return. So they're looking for hard assets so they can get that income return as part of their portfolio. And I think a lot of people raising capital do these multifamily sponsor kind of funds and GPLP structures. Uh, very few are going to investors and say, hey, do you want a 10% return? And you know our LTV is low and there's a hard asset and you take it over if we fail to make these income payments to you. Uh, I see one person offering that for every 50 I see doing a traditional LPGP. Uh, so my investors, at least some of them, uh, are interested in the debt structure. Anyone else want to comment on that question before we take another? 
Uh, did we have any other hands up? Yeah. Oh, here we go. I, I have a question. Uh, this is for David. Uh, David, you mentioned that you're seeing tremendous opportunity in the opportunity zone, and you have an agnostic geographic preference. Um, what asset class are you finding most attractive, or is it on a deal-by-deal -deal basis? I mean, are you looking at commercial, office, uh, multi-use, hospitality? Yeah, the, the, mo the ones I've liked so far the most are, are residential, generally around or adjacent to university complexes where there's a large demand for dormitory housing. And shockingly, as this may sound, when they did the census to determine opportunity zones, children or kids who go to universities don't generate a lot of income, and so they were censused as opportunity zones. Isn't that remarkable? But they still need a place to live, and they pay rent, and they turn over because universities, especially universities in good cities, good schools, but those have been, to me, the best projects I've seen, and they're, they're, they're sort of modeling out at high teens returns before the tax benefits. Great, thank you. Duel? Uh, yes, my question is maybe what keeps you up at night or what do you worry about and how do you prepare for maybe a black swan event or what are you investing in for that in case that ever happens? I can, I can, uh, I can elaborate a little bit on so, this, but um, go ahead. The reason I came here is just to talk briefly to the um, trade finance war that the U.S. is having with China and they impacted all the economies because the U.S. is having this trade war with China but also with Europe and Eastern Europe and Canada and Mexico and Brazil and Argentina. So I believe that the president is a little bit exaggerating in protecting but Anyway, um, that have opened two opportunities. The first of all is the commodity trade finance. We are uh, mainly the emerging market ex exporters of commodities, and it's $19 trillion opportunity. And if something happened, if a recessionary period happened, people need to be fed. So we are talking about 1.5 billion people in China, 1.4 in India, 1.3 in um, emerging Africa. So there is no reason why we're thinking that we are not keep producing, keep processing, and keep selling. There is no reason why any recession in the world of black swan like you mentioned will stop that business. As a matter of fact, in the financing side, which is the second portion, uh, we are protected because this, the same thing, the uh, producing food or, or strategic metals and mining and all of these commodities that the Chinese government needs or the Indian, etc., they will still buy it. They are desperate looking for routes and suppliers. So therefore, that's my strategy, you know, intervening in the trade in the trade finance the trade commodity and also financing all these type of commodities if i have some time for the rest i will i will explain otherwise look for me and i explain okay thank you dan yeah i was gonna basically say where we are in the equities market now um, especially from the reversal with the fed since the end of last year um, there's never been a case higher for you know diversification in the markets 
I think um, a lot of, of, of what, um, what people are, what I'm getting feedback from and what I'm seeing myself is you know, the level of uncertainty with returns, with interest rates being low, um, it's a time to really step back and look at the diversification that you can have in a portfolio. A lot of what I see on the managed futures side are you can add portfolio overlays onto your portfolio, uh, which in essence will capture upside return um, in those black swan events. And a lot of people will, will incorporate the futures market. Uh, the, the commodities futures industry as a whole has really underperformed over the past decade, obviously, compared to equities. So it's, uh, it gives us a good uh, situation to kind of overall kind of reassess where you are on an allocation standpoint to say, okay, maybe uh, it's a time to look at um, taking some money and, and, and providing yourself with liquidity um, and putting yourself into investments that can actually come in to help provide you with the ability to come in at another situation if you need to, should there be a shock. Great. Yeah, I think to your point, Dan, and your point earlier, David, about the passive exposure, you know, the same brain that's going to help you design your passive public market exposure or your futures exposure is probably not the same brain as helping you negotiate that land deal in Los Angeles or negotiating a gross revenue royalty on a consumer products company. Uh, the person with amazing deal flow in one area is not going to know how to structure anything in the public markets if they're focused on direct investments. So having different brains helping your single family office with those different challenges is something that's uh, fairly common. Uh, did you have, do you have a real quick follow-up question, Duel? Or, or is no, that no, good? that's good. Okay. Thank you. Great. Thank you. One question back here. Yep. Whoops. Hi, I'm, I'm Tavis. This is my first month with Family Office Club, so, so far I really like it. <laughs> Welcome. So, so thank you. Um, I wanted to ask advice uh, from the single family offices. Um, we, so we are an impact company. We provide uh, phone service for families with Alzheimer's. So it is a niche market. But as I talk to different family offices that are focusing on real estate or other fields, uh, I've also been told that there are that most of the family offices have something of a foundation investment or foundation funds that may actually benefit from that as well. And I wanted advice on how I go about building relationships with those family offices to learn more about that. Anyone want to comment on that, Marco? I think you already are seeking for the advice, right? So I, <laughs> the best part of all this, since you're coming to these events, is to talk to us, present yourself, and what exactly the idea is. And if we like it and we can incorporate it into our foundations, then that's a winner. The best way, I think, to find an investor for something is someone who already has some point of uh, relevance or they're familiar with the situation. And I think one out of every four families has someone who has Alzheimer's or a grandma or a cousin or aunt or someone. So I think that a lot of people maybe could relate to that need. It's kind of like senior living investments. Even if you didn't make your money in that area, you probably had a family member that has gone through the process, knows how much it costs, knows how there might be a shortage of that and how that space is done well. So I see that your area might have a little bit more mass appeal than someone who's raising capital for a pharma deal that's stage three FDA trials and you have to navigate that risk profile. You know, so I think there could be some appeal from single family offices for that reason. Uh, that'd be one benefit. Anyone else want to comment? I would say go look at who's donated a lot of money to your cause, right? Like if there's a, a pavilion in a hospital where someone wrote a big check, finding your way to that person is probably, you know, you've already got the sale 90% done. And also I want to add a twist to the comment about um, giving up and giving uh, 
with impact or have investment with impact relating to you know the um, the emerging markets you know and 50% of the 19 trillion dollar trade that I was trade finance or trade international trade that I was talking is coming from and originating from emerging market emerging Latin America emerging Africa so one of the things that I would like you to think about is we're supposed to be the smartest guy in the room. We're supposed to see what other people don't see. We're supposed to have the smart money. So why don't we, when we do good things for us, we have profit for us, why don't we see what is the problem that we can solve? Let's say, okay, there is a rural area, they need electricity, let's put solar panel, create energy that my company profit for, but everybody has the community profit for. And this is an example, water, environment, income inequality, gender. So by doing these investments in emerging market, we could benefit with great impact. Great, thank you. I think we have one last question here, and then we're gonna to need to uh, wrap it up, but since cocktails are after this, It'll be easier to ask your questions directly in just a minute. Yes. Hi, my name is Daniel Kianmud. Uh, I'm based in Los Angeles. I focus on assisted living development in urban LA. And my question is, when it comes to real estate investment, for those of you who invest in real estate, how do you get comfortable with investing in a new product type, like assisted living or data center, that you haven't done in the past? Any of you want to share? Um, for us, if we don't do it, we don't do it. Um, we, we are in like extended stay on the very high end of the market and we got in by accident. Um, just a project ended up having a lot of very eccentric bits of it, so we made it a very high end extended stay in Hollywood. Um, I wouldn't know how to get it my arms around. My understanding is assisted living is like a business. It's not as much of a real estate. I don't know, I don't know enough about it. Uh, around new stuff, I mean, around my personal investments, I'm, I put money into retail recently because I think it's oversold and you can get super cap rates and people are going to be shopping in a supermarket in 30 years. I don't care what anyone says. So, uh, David, uh, you're exploring opportunity zones. At some point, you weren't familiar with that. You're trying to figure out who the best operators are. And then, Marco, you're doing a lot of new stuff, like new technologies. And um, maybe if you two just have like maybe one sentence of advice uh, they would, you know, how do you think about it when you enter that space until you're high conviction enough to pull the trigger on something? Yeah, I mean, it was part of our prep materials, but it's about who you know, right, and who you can trust. If you're going to get into something new that you're not familiar with, clearly who the sponsor, developer, leader of that project is, how reputable they are, who are the co-investors that you can look to who have diligenced the project or the people to help you in your own underwriting of a particular transaction, that's critical. I think there was some statistic you quoted about people won't do business with someone unless they know them for three years. I don't know if there's a magic to what time frame you have to know somebody before you can invest in an assisted living deal, but you clearly should, if you don't know that kind of asset, make sure you know your partners. Great. Mark? So we've, we're, we're part of the Milia group of hotels, about 350 hotels worldwide. 
So to us, our concentration is to I reduce... stay at those hotels. Uh, I stay at those hotels. Yeah, I'm pretty sure a lot of you have to. Um, Discounts. Resorts, yeah. <laughs> Free venues. Big ones, at least 30%. Yeah. <laughs> this guy, the way he drinks. Anyway, uh, <laughs> with, the, with the million hotels, we've been focusing on reducing the cost by investing in technologies that today a hotel like this will be heavily reliant on, such as the OTAs, for example, Expedia, Booking, any type of investment management system that is behind running payments, it's extremely expensive. So what we started doing was invested in those technologies ourselves so that we can circle the money around. And that has been a very successful model for us. Great, great, thank you, Marco. Um, so before uh, we break here for cocktails, I just want to let everyone know in the corner out here is an exhibit table from Canapreneur, which is a holding company that only invests in cannabis or cannabis tech or cannabis real estate related businesses and lending opportunities. And I know that um, Michael is here. Uh, if you want to raise your hand, Michael, just so people recognize you at the cocktail party. So drinks are on Michael tonight. So uh, let's give a round of applause for Michael real quick. And in addition to that, we're having, a, if you're not joining us tomorrow, which will be a shame because we have 28 investors on stage in just half a day. So whatever you're doing tomorrow, you have to compete against that. Uh, that's almost as many investors as we normally have at a full day event in New York or San Francisco or Dallas. And you're getting it with just half a day of your time if you're willing to get up early tomorrow morning. We have breakfast here at 7 a.m. The event starts right at 8 a.m. And we'll be done at noon. So you can figure out who you want to have lunch with afterwards here on the premises or around in Key Biscayne or downtown. Um, so I just want to remind you that we have 28 more investors on stage tomorrow. I hope everyone here walks away with uh, a stack of 50 business cards, five people that were pretty meaningful to connect with, and hopefully one or two that you get real business done with, but also additional access to deal flow, best practices, models you can emulate, so you get your ROI in a couple different ways and can be more effective, but also more well-connected after this event. And if we don't see you uh, tomorrow, I hope you're able to join us once a quarter next year. And let's give the uh, panelists a big round of applause. And uh, feel free to enjoy the cocktails now. Thank you. <laughs>